Hey crew, before we get started today, have you ever had one of those years? 2020 might be your opportunity to get started on one if you haven't. Uh, in the past six months, specifically in the last three months, it's been particularly difficult to produce this show. Uh, I was really sick just after New Year's. Might have been the coronavirus, we don't know, and that shot my voice for a while. Uh, the computer I bought to replace the Beast, the old computer that gave me so much trouble, uh, has also started to give me trouble, so we've got a la bête de situation going on. That's great. And because of coronavirus, many of the events that I had planned to attend, not only as a representative of this show, but also for the network, have been canceled. And even though you'd think everyone's home now, it's, it's easy to get some Skype interviews in, that doesn't necessarily follow. Everybody's schedule has been upset by this, myself included. So many of the interviews that I'd had scheduled for the week previous and the weeks to come have been canceled or rescheduled. Is this the worst year ever? Hard to say. We'd need a really big fire to compete with 1666, God forbid, and lots of volcanoes to get near 536. Let's just say things aren't the best that they can be right now. It's a small point of pride for me that generally the show continues apace uh, and at a particular standard of quality, no matter what. Whatever struggles are happening behind the scenes, you don't hear it on the program. But we're going to break that streak a little bit today. I spoke with Annika Dane and Liz Barr of Antimatter Pod a few weeks ago about the TNG episode, The Offspring. And though the conversation went swimmingly, the audio recording of the talk, not so much. See aforementioned technical problems. My side of the conversation is, uh, is a little bit Chernobyl. Not great, but not terrible. Not exactly a relaxing spa day for your ears, but not, say, metal machine music. Normally, I would scrap the show and see if I could re-record it with the guests, but there's just so much going on right now, it didn't seem like an option. And at the same time, it, it's such a good discussion, and I, I like talking with Liz and Annika so much that I couldn't bear to part with the show, so I'm presenting it in full here. Like I said, it's not unlistenable, but my PC mic was doing its own thing during the taping, and there's a consistent muffled hum throughout, like I'm on a starship, but like a dumb starship, a pack-led ship. Uh, ironically, Liz and Annika both recorded their own side of the talk flawlessly. They sound great. Uh, I sound like a dial-up caller on my own show. So maybe just pretend that they have deigned to let me talk about the offspring on their show, Antimatter Pod. Other than that, it's always great to talk to Annika and Liz. Uh, you could find Antimatter Pod at antimatterpod.podbean.com. Uh, I've had a lot of fun talking to them. Uh, we'll be back next week with a no more normal-sounding show, hopefully. In the meantime, stay safe and healthy. And as for me, I'm not exactly going to lose a ton of money by not being able to travel for work and for the show, but I am losing some. Uh, so if you want to contribute to the show and maybe buy me a hammer so I can smash the crap out of my dumb computer, or maybe more constructively to help the show continue to grow, you can always help out by going to patreon.com forward slash E-I-S-T-P-O-D and becoming a crew member of the show or by clicking through our Amazon banner or our Amazon links when you're shopping on Amazon. Enjoy our talk on The Offspring, wash them hands, and with that, let's get underway.
Reads is open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and I, too, have somehow mastered humor without understanding it. <laughs> I'm joined once again on this episode by Annika Dane and Liz Barr, the hosts of Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast about fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace. Annika and Liz, welcome back to the show. Thank, Thank you. you for having us back. It's great to have you back aboard. Today we'll be talking about The Offspring, the 16th episode of the third season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Star Trek is... Dot, 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 was the title of the original 16-page pitch document drafted by Gene Roddenberry to sell his show idea to TV networks. The pitch contains many unique ideas that are recognizable in the original series, and many ideas that never made it to screen, like the central vessel being called the Yorktown, the widespread presence of psychic abilities, or the existence of Congo, a planet where blacks had enslaved whites in a parallel to the old plantation days. Oh, no. Whatever, whatever his aspirations regarding social justice may have been, Gene had produced a creative but somewhat dry take on a possible future that fit firmly into the action-adventure mold. But over the course of half a century, perhaps implausibly, Star Trek, through the work of Roddenberry and countless other hands, would evolve into an exemplar of allegorical storytelling in genre fiction. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. Before we talk about that, ladies, we have to talk about Star Trek Picard. And I want to I warn any listeners who are not caught up on Picard, uh, whatever this comes out or whatever you're listening to it, that we'll be talking about Picard probably up through uh, episode five of Picard. So if you wanna, don't want to be spoiled, you might want to skip forward. But when you guys were last on the program, uh, we talked about the TNG episode Sarek, uh, which is just a few episodes back from The Offspring. And of course, yeah. it's, a, it's a great showcase for Picard and the titular character. And we speculated on what we'd see in the series Picard. And now, of course, the show is here. And you guys have been doing a lot of commentary on Picard on your great podcast, Any Matter Pod. And I'm going to do you both something of a disservice by asking you to give <laughs> me, at first, your general thoughts on the show. Although we can definitely open it up for a, a larger discussion. Um, <laughs> go for it, Liz. I know you want to. A conversation I have had in multiple places in the last couple of days, including recording Antimatter Pod yesterday, is that I've realised that Star Trek Picard is not very good, but I like <laughs> it anyway. And when people criticise it, I want to go, no, no, it's got these wonderful characters. Why don't you love them as much as I do? But at the same time, it's really, in terms of storytelling, I really don't think it's very good at all. Uh, would you call it unsophisticated? That is definitely a word for it. Okay. it I think they're trying. I don't know that Michael Chabon has enough experience to be show running at this point in his career. Mm. And I just wish they had taken a bit more time to revise the scripts and balance out the exposition a little better. Yeah. Annika, how about you? Um, I, honestly, I think that I can't really judge it at all until I've seen all 10 episodes. That's fair. It, it very much feels like it will make sense in the end, or it will not make sense in the end. Like, okay. one of those. Yeah. 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 But it's not a story yet. Yeah, that's... Uh, I have a, a podcast called Discoverage, where we talk about CBS All Access shows, uh, Picard among them. And that's kind of been a, a recurring uh, point on our show, just the idea that it feels like... You know, they, they said that it was going to be a 10-hour movie. They said that, you know, before it came out. And it does feel like that, but it feels like maybe it's a two-hour movie. 
and we're just going to spend 10 hours with it. Yeah, yeah. Like, the story is really interesting, but I don't care for the structure. And I kind of am a structure nerd, so that's what I pay attention to. But at the same time, what I wanted from this series was characters, new characters that I would love, and I've got those in spades. So, swings and roundabouts. See, I don't really watch anything for plot. (laughs) (laughs) Like, ever. So... I'm okay with there not being a plot, but when the plot doesn't make sense, I start yeah. to worry. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's why I'm like, I'm, I'm going to assume that this will eventually make sense and something will happen. But I, I do, I also love the characters, and I can imagine a lot of different stories being told about these characters. So yeah. I'm hoping for that. Like maybe once they get the main idea out of the way, we can get to something that's really great. That's interesting because I, 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 th- I think that I probably would ball right down the middle of uh, your two uh, opinions <laughs> on that. Uh, I do like structure, but I am really there for, uh, for character and theme, I think. Mm. And um, I don't know, I think that the structure is playing out how you'd expect it to play out in a uh, two or two and a half hour movie. We're just sort of doing it in slow motion. Um, and as far as like those characters, I think some of the, I think yeah, I love the characters so far, but I'm a little dismayed at uh, now we get into spoiler talk. Uh, the last episode, which was determined to kill off it seems as many characters as it could get away with. I mean, two, only two. Well, also Bejazel though. I mean, Bejazel could have been an interesting uh, character in the world of the show going forward, but uh, no, no more her. Yeah, she would have made a great recurring villain and a nemesis for Seven of Nine, and it seems like they've had. A decade of hating each other, and it's all <laughs> yeah. all implied. Yeah. Which was strange. My co-host on uh, Discoverage was convinced that they uh, had a, a romantic history, and I guess I didn't... Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay. I guess I didn't pick up on that in my, in my first watch. <laughs> I definitely picked up on it. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah. Um, but I also, like, asked all of my friends, Do, did you see this, or is it just me because I'm me? So... It was not explicit. It was not textual. (laughs) It was just, Mm. like, um, suggested. Sure, sure. And I guess that would, um, thankfully, hopefully put paid to the Chakotay uh, (laughs) 7 relationship then at the end of uh, the last season of Voyager. I think she's left him behind. Yeah. Whatever happened, she's left him behind. Yeah. (laughs) She's moved on. He's no ranger. It's not ranger material. Uh, well, Which is funny because the Rangers seem so marquee like. Yeah, they but do. Yeah, yeah. Chakotay was in it to protect his home, and I assume now he's home, and it wasn't a point of principle for him in the same way as for others. I kind of right. want Bellana to be a Ranger, though, I'll be honest. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And Tom stays home and looks after the kids. Looks after exactly. the kids. <laughs> well, we do a live show every Thursday night where we talk about that week's episode of Picard. So if listeners are interested, they can find out more at our Twitter at EISTpod. Annika, I really enjoyed your recent article on Women at Warp uh, entitled Lessons I Learned from the Women of Voyager. Yes. Uh, and I like that you showcased a few unconventional choices uh, like Tal Sellers and Rain Robinson. And when people write about Voyager, they usually don't single out Kess, but I liked your calling out of Kess's compassion as a character. Yeah, Kess is, is often forgotten as a woman of Voyager, even though she was in the main cast for three seasons. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wait, I mean, to be fair, Voyager also forgot that she was in the main cast for three seasons. Yeah, they really so, did. Sometimes yeah. when she was there. 
Um, so I understand it, but I, she was the first Voyager character that I really glommed onto in the pilot. You know, I thought in that first episode, I was like, oh, she's going to be the character that is my favorite. And, the, and really in the first like few episodes, uh, when, which were showcasing her compassion and her eagerness and excitement to be there and try to like sort of insert herself helpfully into the crew as a contrast to Neelix, who sort of like forced himself into the crew mm -hmm. to tell them why they needed his help right. instead of, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I always try to give a shout out to Kess because I think she could have been an amazing character. I, I relate her to Deanna Troy often uh. and say, you know, eventually they figured out that Deanna Troy could be great. Yeah, right, right. It just took a really, really long time, and they never got there with Kess. And That's... I think they, they have similar, like, places, and we, the, the people who are writing the show just didn't know what to do with that kind of character. They, like, could be super powerful or could be a, an ingenue. And, yeah, right, yeah. right. Yeah, she was too perfect for the show, maybe, or at least too nice and, and well-adjusted. And unfortunately, I think that that role falls very often to the female characters in shows like this. It's like they're afraid to, to give them dings and flaws and uh, things mm. you can hang stories on. Right. Boo! Boo to that! <laughs> it's great. It's, it's such an internet thing, but in the article, you uh, tagged Kiss's personality as uh, ill-defined and full of unrealized potential, and nobody said anything. As soon as you called Janeway's characterization messy, surprise! Four-paragraph <laughs> four response in the comments. I mean, that's just the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, people Speaking... have had strong opinions about Janeway since before she existed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that when they were like, we're going to have a female captain on this show, everyone's like, whoa, no, wait, let me explain mm. to you in four paragraphs or more <laughs> why that's a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. So. And I think as a result, Janeway fans can often be very defensive. And yeah. certainly it took me a long time to admit, okay, yeah, she is kind of unevenly and inconsistently written yeah. because so much of the people so much of that criticism came from a place of bad faith and people going <laughs> she's a woman therefore we're going to find her flaws she does have flaws and some of them are intentional and some of them are bad writing and it's been 20 years I can finally admit it <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying I've been on a rewatch recently of Voyager and trying to sort of pin that down I'm nearing the end of episode or excuse me season 5 and it's oh nice yeah it's hard to pin down I mean her progression I'm not sure if the writers lost the plot or if what they intended isn't coming through I think Janeway definitely gets harder after you know Tuvix and Coda and Scorpion but she mostly just seems exhausted by the time we get to the Omega Directive and the end of uh, the yeah, fourth season yeah. yes, and yes. as season five picks up uh, with Knight she's just going full hair shirt over her decision to go home the long way I think but that sort of that those episodes came out right around the time when I was at UD and I was 19 and I was having my first experience with clinical depression mm. so that really meant a lot to me at the time yeah. but I kind of at the same time look at it and go did we have to give this plot to the first female captain <laughs> right yeah <laughs> the first captain to doubt themselves and we made it a, a yeah a yeah yeah uh... <laughs> okay well let's try to pep this up a little uh Liz <laughs> 
Liz, we talked previously about your uh, tracking of gender parity or disparity in Star Trek creators, and I guess we'd need another 50 years for the numbers to totally balance out, but are, are we trending strongly up for female representation with the advent of all-access series? Uh, in terms of writers for the television show, yes. Mm -hmm. They're doing... Uh, Picard, not so much, but Discovery has a really good balance in its writer's room. That's great. Uh, the interesting thing is that the tie-ins are going steadily down. In the 80s, the tie-in writers were 60% female, and mm. today, in the last decade, they have been 12% female. Hmm. So, that's a bit depressing, and there is currently only one woman actively writing Star Trek novels for the line, and that's Una McCormack, whom I love, and I mean no criticism at all of the men writing the novels either, but it seems like it's become a very, very small pool, and it's mostly men. Yeah. And... Una is outnumbered by guys named Dave. Yeah, um, mostly guests on this show, which I guess I, yeah. I, I'd be careful saying bad things about. But, <laughs> but I know that uh, Kirsten Beyer does have a, a novel coming out at the end of this year. Um, I've had the impression that she's been working on it for a few years and it was put back and this might be her last. Oh boy. Because it looks like the autobiography... The autobiography of Catherine Janeway has been given to Una McCormack, and yeah. it looks like she might be taking over the Voyager line. Mm. And I've listened to your episodes with all the Daves, and they seem like really nice guys. <laughs> no, and I'm are. so happy <laughs> yeah. to, to have them as friends. I just, I don't want less from them. I want more from everyone else. I really yeah. want a bigger pool. Which, Me too. Yeah. I don't know that Simon & Schuster has, is willing to commit the money to expand the tie-in line. Well, they certainly should commit it because they're committing uh, scads and scads of dollars to expanding Trek, uh, you know, on the, mm. you know, on the small screen. And so hopefully that will uh, trickle down to the Italian books as well. Hopefully, yeah. It seems like they shrank in 2009 when the economy collapsed and the bottom <laughs> yeah. fell out of the publishing industry. Yeah. And it's never recovered. Well, speaking of novels, can you talk at all about the novel that you're working on? <laughs> it's a very, very Australian middle grade science fiction. About... <laughs> I have no idea what that means. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> aimed at about girls about 12, well, children about 12 and younger. It's okay. about the heiress to a galactic empire who finds herself stranded alone on her ancestral homeworld of Earth in 1986 in Brisbane. Okay. It's the Brisbane part that makes it very, very Australian. Okay. But uh, that was an era of a notoriously corrupt super right-wing government. And uh -huh. so if you're going to, if you're going to put a, an alien conspiracy anywhere in Australian history, it would absolutely be 80s Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's also my home city. So sure. this is really a, a love letter to a tiny and ridiculous city. And I don't know if it will have wide appeal, but a lot of local people seem very enthusiastic so okay yeah i'm revising and then i'll submit i uh, that's great and, and uh, good luck with that um i uh i have been trying to get into um osploitation films uh oh. <laughs> yeah i've uh, started started off of course with like mad max and kind of worked mm. my way to uh, dead end drive-in and uh, films like that. And so those always seem to take place uh, in like an apocalyptic uh, landscape, but uh, it's sort of a yeah, similar... Yeah, we call it the Northern Territory. The Northern Territory, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, I do get that one. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. And please let us know uh, when, when that moves forward. Thank you. Well, why don't you guys choose this specific episode, The Offspring, to discuss today? Uh, obviously, it's because Data has daughters in Star Trek Picard, well, and they're yeah. <laughs> the main plot. 
yeah. as, as much as there is a plot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, th- this episode is uh, fascinates me, and it's it gets lost, I think, um, behind you know the measure of a man. This is really more the measure yeah. of, of a parent uh, or the measure of a child. Mm. And I think it's just as important as that episode, and it's also important, I think, uh, just looking for the whole sort of overarching development of the show as a real turning point for Trek. And we all know that Trek really, really starts to get going in the third season. And a lot of people would peg it uh, around the time of Yesterday's Enterprise. And of course, um, The Offspring is a show where things really start to turn around and we get to see TNG fire on all cylinders and be the Mm. show that is producing episodes that we'll remember. Yeah, yeah. And it was just so... Like you say, I think it's often overshadowed by the measure of a man, and even I dismissed it recently as the measure of a man, but with more emotional manipulation. But re-watching it, it's a really wonderful story about parenthood and the difficulty of being a parent when you're a marginalised person, and mm. how even if your personhood is recognised, people can give lip service to that but not respect it. And even Picard has this initial reaction of how dare data reproduce without consulting me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is so... I know, which I, I've been puzzling over that reaction, you know, if it's just the sort of last uh, gasp of the kind of stuffy Picard that we get in early TNG, or if he, he's probably thinking, we just did this already. We already went through the whole thing with your rights, and i got to do this all over again, and i got to see Philippa Lovois again, probably. And Yeah, he's... <laughs> He's envisioning a headache that, uh, of course, Data shouldn't have to think about, but is not thinking about. No, I think it's that, and it's also Picard, despite claims about TNG, Picard is a guy with flaws, and he is Data's greatest champion, but he still has his blind spots. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, he certainly does. Uh, Well, we're talking the TNG episode, The Offspring, the 16th episode of the third season of the show. It first aired on March 12th of 1990. Uh, just a little under 30 years ago as a recording of this. Uh, it was written by Rene Echeverria. Echeverria wrote or contributed to a total of 41 scripts between his time on TNG and DS9. He also served as an executive story editor on TNG and a producer on DS9. And he got his start in Hollywood on Trek, but he went on to write and produce for series like Medium, Castle, and Terra Nova, and he co-created the series The 4400 and Carnival Row. Oh, Wow. The episode was directed by Jonathan Frakes, uh, who of course originated the role of William Riker on TNG and its spin-offs, but he also became a prolific director in the franchise, directing 19 episodes combined of TNG, DS9, Voyager, Discovery, and Picard, as well as the feature films First Contact and Insurrection. The stardate given in the episode is 43657.0, and your assignment, Annika and Liz, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of The Offspring custody battle between Starfleet and Data over his daughter ends quite badly. Oh, that's oh, so no. sad. Mm-hmm. Sort of Admiral versus Android. Yeah, yeah. But it's also about... It's it's a, a very contracted coming-of-age story. <laughs> mm. For, yes. honestly, both Lal and Data. I think I would criticize usually the kind of story where we've got a character, if it's a film or an ongoing series, we've got an established character that we know. Somebody comes into their life and changes it, and then they die of unspecified illness. And the person Mm. is like, 
I really changed. I really changed. I'm going to move forward differently from this. Uh, that's kind of what we have here, but yet I don't feel that way about this episode. No, no, it's interesting, and I think it, that's part of how how well it is done that it doesn't feel like that cliche. Yeah, I mean that's definitely a trope that you see. Uh, white guy learns something from woman minority, what have you, who uh, has to go away or die. Yeah, I was going to say it's also the classic Mary Sue storyline of a woman with a connection to one of the men of the series comes in, <laughs> yeah. has a significant part in his life, and then dies tragically and is mourned by everyone. Yeah, that was. Uh, I was just about to uh, talk about uh, Rene Echevarria writing the script, and that was this was his first spec script. Uh, probably not altogether, but the one that he submitted to Trek under their uh, open um, acceptance program. And it the, the original version of the script was called Bloodlines, and it was totally focused on, I don't know if she was called Lal, but the, the, the analog character, which mm. is something that they tell you and I think is in their submission Bible, like, don't do don't that. Do <laughs> yeah, don't write a script where Lieutenant Mary Sue comes on and everybody thinks she's really great, and oh no, she's got to go, yeah. Um but they reworked it, and Michael, Michael Piller really liked the idea. And, of course, um, they reworked the story so that it would focus uh, not just on the character of Lyle, but also uh, Data and his experiences mm. as a parent, and also his motivations in creating her, I find fascinating in the episode. Uh, so, yes, yeah. it was uh, Escheria's work, but Melinda Snodgrass and Michael Piller also reportedly did page one rewrites of the story. Uh, and the episode is also uh, Jonathan Frakes' first work as a director. Um, this is the first episode of TNG to be directed by a cast member, a process that would become fairly de rigueur for shows going forward. Uh, and Frakes studied hard to be ready for his role as director, although he said that he was happy that he drew a Data episode as his first because Data episodes always work. That makes yes. sense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Mm -hmm. But I would offer my own axiom, Guinan episodes always work, and right. this, of course, is this is an episode featuring Guinan. Whoopi Goldberg had lobbied during the production of the episode that one of her lines be changed from when a man and woman are in love to when two people are in love, uh, arguing that the world of Star Trek had evolved beyond heteronormativity. That line does not appear in the episode. Uh, it was also decided on set that the scene with the line in question would feature a same-sex couple holding hands, uh, this was nixed by the production office when supervising producer David Livingston came down to ensure that that did not happen. Yeah. History does not record the name of the homophobic narc that made the call <laughs> to the production offices. Well, at least at least we'll be tried. Yes, yeah, someone was out there <laughs> fighting the fight. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and I don't know what the huge objection would have been, except, and I don't know if this is the episode for that, someday we're going to have a big episode about this, but just the... Uh, the climate of uh, homophobia, or at least just not wanting to explore any LGBTQ issues on the show under the auspices of Rick Berman, but I don't know what the problem would have been with that. This seems like a great, even if you're going to do lip service, this seems like a great lip service moment. Right. I, I don't think Berman even wanted lip service, to be honest. Mm. And I don't want to single him out because I'm sure that his opinions were very, very common and if it hadn't been him it would have been someone else but yeah yeah i i um someday someday we're gonna really dig into that on the show uh, <laughs> not today though this episode's well remembered by many star trek personnel jonathan frakes in 2001 called it the best sci-fi episode the show had done and his favorite to direct it's one of michael doran's favorite two episodes the other one being the drumhead Michael Pillar. He's not even in this. I know. I no, and I know. Say. And that's, that's, that's a great recommendation, because, yeah, it's not even one that he's in. He's just like, oh, they're just good episodes. 
Uh, Michael Piller called it one of his favorite TNG episodes, along with Measure of a Man and The Inner Light. So that is a rare company. He even went so far to make sure that the episode got a second airing during sweeps to increase its exposure and hopefully put it on the radar for a technical Emmy Award. And Mary Wiseman, the actress behind Ensign Tilly, also calls this her favorite episode. Aww. Yeah, which I thought was neat. I love how you always get the uh, the question asked of actors that come on to Trek. Uh, did you know anything about Trek, you know, before you uh, got hired to right, work for Trek? Right. And you get somebody like Jerry Ryan who's like, no, I, I didn't watch Star Trek. But of course, the longer the, on a long enough timeline, we're all Trek fans now, right? Like you hire Michelle Hurd for Picard, and she's like, of course, of course I watched Trek. Like... Yeah, yeah. Which I think is really uh, is really great. Uh, in contrast to all this love, Melinda Snodgrass did not like the episode much, saying that she felt that it was, quote, fairly obvious and tired and stupid. Uh, she also, yeah, I know. Uh, she also said uh, it had a lot to do with Measure of a Man, which I don't think we needed to do again so soon. And she <laughs> said, quote, it was a good show for Jonathan to start with. It was a nice bottle show, and he didn't have to cope with alien cultures. I faint, faint understand. Yeah, I understand where Melinda is coming from, but I think she's wrong. <laughs> I don't. Um, I don't disagree uh, yeah. with uh, your opinion about friend of the show Melinda Snodgrass's opinion. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just think you know, Measure of a Man was her episode. And, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. the offspring does come quite fast after that, and yeah. it does retrade some ground. And I think she was probably. Well, I think she was probably too close to the story to appreciate the parallels and the way this episode builds on Measure of a Man. Yeah. And I think it's not unreasonable for a writer to feel a bit protective about their work and maybe resent a bit that it's the subject of a retread so fast. Yeah, and she was, um, I know, disappointed with uh, and frustrated with the management at the time and some of the output. Mm. And so I, I can understand why, why she would have that opinion. Uh, speaking of episodes connected to this, there was a discussion about possibly having a sequel episode to The Offspring in the fifth season of TNG. In it, Lore would steal Lal's body and attempt to reactivate her using the Sung emotion chip, but cooler heads prevailed and the idea was scrapped. Oh, my God. Oh, well, now I think we know how Star Trek The Card is going to end. <laughs> okay. Well, we got to cut all this. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, I can't see what we would have got out of uh, Dark Lol or whatever they were going to do with it. Uh, yeah, I don't... I'm not a big law fan. I think the less, the better. And this is a perfect little standalone. Also, just steal Lol's body. <laughs> I know. Just stop. Stop. No. You don't have to finish that sentence. Do not do that. <laughs> <laughs> She's just in a storage locker or something on deck 36. Yeah, right. Maybe Data's keeping her in his quarters? <laughs> She's just propped up in the corner. Yeah, yeah. Spot is using her for a scratching post. Yeah, not great. <laughs> Really disturbing. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's talk You're welcome. <laughs> let's talk about the guest stars in the episode. And uh, there is only two, maybe three, that I can think of. This is a very, uh, this is a bottle show, so it's uh, sort of low bandwidth. Uh, Hallie Todd plays Lol. Todd is an actress, producer, and writer. And her mother was Anne Morgan Gilbert, who played Millie Helper on the Dick Van Dyke show. And she was the stepdaughter of Guy Raymond, who played the bartender in the original series episode, The Trouble of Tribbles. Oh, wow. 
Oh. Yeah, <laughs> interesting connections. Uh, her feature film debut was an uncredited role in Fast Times at Richmond High, and she's gone on to several recurring regular roles on television, including Penny on the 80s ABC sitcom Brothers, and Joe McGuire, the mother of the titular character on the show Lizzie McGuire. Which oh. I have never watched, but my sister was a big, big fan when that was a, that was a thing. Yeah, Lizzie McGuire was huge in my household. <laughs> yeah, was it? <laughs> huge. <laughs> I never saw it, but I know that it is coming back uh, for a reboot, and she yeah. will actually be on the reboot, too. <gasps> That's so fun. I'm going to, like, look out for her now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My, my daughter is, like, super done excited for, the, for more Lizzie McGuire. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, she's also written two nonfiction books based on her life and experiences uh, being young actors and parenting young actors. Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah, um... Nicholas Coster appears as Anthony Admiral Anthony Haftel. Coster has had a long, long career in TV and film. Most of his career has been spent on daytime TV, where he's been featured on nearly every soap opera that you can think of. Uh, he's also appeared in films like All the President's Men, Reds, and Betsy's Wedding. And in 2017, he won a daytime Emmy for his work on the Amazon Prime series The Bay. And finally, Leonard Crowfoot appears as the ungendered form of Lau. Crowfoot is an actor and dancer who originally appeared in Trek in the first season TNG episode, Angel One. He is the, he's a little guy who's Mistress Beata's sort of uh, aide-de-camp or, or, or what have you. No way! Really? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. He's the guy that gets all jealous, you know, when she starts making eyes at Riker. And yeah, he's like, yeah. oh, yeah, he's all mad. Uh, and he also yeah. appeared as an unnamed Komar dignitary in the sixth season episode of Voyager, Virtuoso. Good on him. Let's uh, let's talk about the episode itself. Um, I read a Hollywood Reporter story that came out just this week that describes the mood in the production and writing offices at this time in TNG when this episode came out. And it's an oral history interview with Ronald D. Moore and Iris Stephen Bear about the production of Yesterday's Enterprise. Um, which is the episode right before this right one. Right before, yes. Yeah, mm. and they're, they're talking about how chaotic the production of the third season was. Everybody was behind and stressed out. They were writing like mad. They were short on scripts. And morale was very low. And everybody had to work very hard on yesterday's Enterprise to get it turned around. This is the famous thing where they had to take it home over um, Thanksgiving weekend, basically, as homework and yeah. uh, come back mm -hmm. in. Uh, but once it was released, uh, it turned out so well. It was so well-received, and... Moore and Bear describe how satisfying it was um, and how the staff was energized, and that became a real turning point in the production of the show. And I think it's really interesting because Michael Piller didn't actually love Yesterday's Enterprise all that much. Um, he really <laughs> preferred the offspring. Uh, he didn't... He just didn't like the alternate universe stuff, and he felt like that wasn't like a fit for the show. And he preferred the more personal drama of The Offspring. And he was kind of alone in that. Everybody on the show that worked on the show, almost everyone, um, Melinda Snodgrass, uh, liked The Offspring, but they thought that Yesterday's Enterprise was so much better. And there's an argument or a discussion that I used to really push on the show. <laughs> I haven't talked about it in a while. That when I hear a lot of Trek fans talk about their favorite episodes of the show... They're episodes that you wouldn't necessarily think of as ones that espouse Trek's premise of, mm. you know, seeing liberal social values played out in sci-fi allegory. They always cite, like, Yesterday's Enterprise, uh, Best of Both Worlds, Scorpion, The War Arc of DS9, you know, the splody ones. And, <laughs> yeah. and I wonder if people, you know, know what show they're watching. And then I, and I go on social media and it seems clear that, no, most people have no idea what show they're watching. For me, like... I am a cliche, Yesterday's Enterprise is one of my favourite yeah. TNG episodes. But for me it's because it is so different and it's it makes it 
makes me appreciate the regular universe so much more. And, you know, the darkness and the war, it's really cool. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I loved all of that in Discovery as well. Yeah. But I am glad that it's not the only thing we get in Trek. My favorite episode of TNG is Ensign Rowe. Okay, sure. <laughs> Which is, like, nothing even happens in that episode. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it is literally about people talking about their lives to each other and making friends. Yeah. So, I think I'm an outlier. <laughs> well, my other favorite is Rascals, where everyone's turned into kids. So, <laughs> please do not take me as any kind of arbiter of taste. Hang up right now, Liz. Come on. Um, no, uh, that's I love the talky ones too, um, and I don't hate like the action ones. I just feel like it's so easy. I feel like that's a different show. I think it's so easy to slip into uh, who are we fighting this week. Uh, there are certain parts of Voyager, and there are great episodes of Voyager, but there are certain parts of Voyager where it's just what percentage are the shields at now? Uh, <laughs> we're just being you know buffeted by fire, and then we use the right weapon or something, and then they're it's just all just war and conflict and a DS9 I think definitely earned it because they spent so much time uh, laying all this groundwork and we understand the emotional uh, and social underpinnings of the war and then you know we get the, the release we get the war um, and it just works so much better but there's there's other action space shows if you, I want to see people arguing over whether an android has the right to exist yeah I think that there's room in Star Trek for both well, sure. and yeah. I think uh uh, again, I understand where Michael's pil pillar is coming from, and I disagree, but I do think he had a point. This is a very underrated episode that's a bit overshadowed by its place in the season. How do you two feel that, um, like, New Trek, the Discovery and Picard sort of, where do they fit on that spectrum? Hmm. I think because they're serialised stories, it's less of it's less easy to break it mm. down into this is a talky trek or yeah. this is a shooty trek. Yeah. So it, it's difficult to say, and I think they're sort of their own thing, and they're trying to explore really big, abstract, complicated ideas over a very long period of time yeah. with occasional interludes for the shooty, shooty, bang, bang. Or not so occasional in the case of Discovery. <laughs> yeah. An, an argument that you hear all the time online is, you know, that if this isn't Trek or it's not as good as Trek used to be. And I think the core of that argument in some cases is what you're describing, that people are mm. seeing a, a, a serial story instead of, um, you know, an episodic story and are not really um, being able to assimilate that, if you will. But I don't yeah. think that, I don't think that Trek has, I think it still holds up the same values and it's delivering episode by episode, perhaps more, you know, this much talky, this much shooty. Yeah. Uh, I also think, you know, Starship Mine is as much Trek as any of the talky <laughs> philosophical episodes. Sure, sure. <laughs> there's, there's, <laughs> speaking of talky, there's a very specific talky subplot in that where Data is trying to learn... Small uh, talk. How to, yeah, how to yeah. survive at a cocktail yeah. party, yeah. And, and there is a part of me that would enjoy a whole episode of nothing but that. that. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. But then there's a weird, it's almost like the writers didn't know how to synthesize the two because there's a weird turn where when the terrorists come out, I think that guy gets killed. The, the, the talking, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty uh, creepy. <laughs> the boring terrible. captain guy is gone, yeah. So, uh, like just today on, online I saw a comment. Um, somebody posted um, just something innocuous, a, a photo of some Borg extras uh, on set 
and a guy commented, oh, is that Bernie Sanders' campaign office? And I'm like, what? What? What is that even supposed to mean? Uh, but this is the kind of person who comments, you know, it's not, it's not Trek. And here's another thing I like to do, and by like I mean here's my existential bucket of cold water for the day, but if you click through to these people's profiles, they are the unhappiest people you will ever see. <laughs> For, forget the PragerU vids that they're constantly sharing. Forget the attacks on snowflakes. Forget that they're Canadian and they have socialized medicine and somehow that's a tragedy. But they're unfailingly locked in a constant war with an enemy that's just like, you okay, bro? Like, what's, what's going on? Yeah, and... Whether it's politics or whatever fandom I'm in, I really do try to avoid becoming that person. Yeah. You know, if I'm that unhappy with my life, I really need to make some changes. But some of these guys, like, we got a troll who said, who accused me of having a heavily misandrist podcast, which I'm very proud of. <laughs> uh, I don't even think we're that misandrist. But I don't think I, they know I, what I, that I word means. <laughs> It means women having opinions, right? Yeah. Uh, but I looked at his profile and it was entirely him defending William Shatner from the mean feminists and oh fighting with people who like The Last Jedi. And, like, I realise that social media is just a small piece of one's life and it yeah. doesn't reflect one's full experience. But right. <laughs> I, I just want to tell this guy to step back and, like, you know, find some other way to enrich himself. And, I mean, enrich his being. That movie has been out for a couple years now. They really need to let it go. I hear it has a sequel. Uh, why do we like this show when the fan base is so toxic? Uh, we can't. You I can't, just really love these characters. We can't let the toxic fan base stop mm. your enjoyment of the show. Like that's what they want. They win if you stop watching the show because you can't take arguing with them anymore. Yeah. Yeah, and I just mostly just ignore them and I have my own nice curated space on the internet where we talk about important things like Picard's Romulan housekeepers and how much they love French pastry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I promise we'll actually talk about Dana Law in a minute, but uh, <laughs> I was talking at the beginning of the show about the perception of Trek as being this this gospel that has brought, you know, allegorical sci-fi to us. Um and, you know, looking into its its history and its background, maybe that's not so true. Uh, what do you girls think about the legend of St. Roddenberry bringing us the tablets from down the mountain of peace and equality? I think Jean, uh, Jean Kuhn and Dorothy Fontana did that work. Mm. I think if you put anything on a pedestal, you're going to be disappointed. Oh, and sure. Yeah. what you should get out of Trek is... You should, you should appreciate the things that, and the lessons you learn and the things that you like and, and how it makes you feel and makes you think. But you yeah. should also acknowledge that other people are going to feel and think and see other things. And that's what's great about it. That's not a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just think it's a mistake to credit something, success or failure, to any one single person, even though I do it all the time, but I'm trying not to. And Star Trek, the original series, was a collaboration, and all of the Star Trek since have been collaborations, and Roddenberry had brilliant ideas and terrible ideas, and so did everyone else who was involved in the show. Sure, yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely yeah. true. And I mean, I'm definitely, as soon as anyone starts saying, or brings up like the question of what Gene Roddenberry would think of Discovery, for example, I just, I, you know, I have to excuse myself from that conversation. 
<laughs> because we first of all we can't possibly know so it, it it's really a silly concept like he's not going to come down from space <laughs> and tell so us you know or, I need to cancel he's not going to come permancy he's not going <laughs> to surprise I'm time traveling from the past <laughs> <laughs> like that's not going to happen so we can't know mm. And trying to argue about it, it just seems like silly. Like just, if you don't like Discovery, you cannot like Discovery and you don't have to bring Gene Roddenberry into it at all. <laughs> I talked about the pitch document before and that's all that he wrote on paper. You know, that's what he brought to networks that were clearly run by middle-aged white men as well. Um, and I guess I'm not really familiar with like the Lieutenant or his work before he got to Star Trek. But mm -hmm. just looking at this guy from the outside, it doesn't seem like you're going to get this progressive show just from this guy. And as you guys said, many people have con uh, contributed to it as well. Mm. And like TOS and even TNG, there's this kind of, early TNG for sure, uh, there's this presumptuousness about the stories are all, well, we fixed our problems, and so we're going to go somewhere else and see, oh boy, this backward culture and their problems. Right. Um, yeah, there's something right. that, uh, that uh, our, I think Liz pointed out in an episode of uh, Animator Pod, you are talking about Picard, which is something that I noticed too. It must have been a clear, intentional decision to put Picard in the costume of a colonizer when he goes to this planet, this dry, dusty planet, uh, of like of mud and, and, and wood buildings like what were they trying to say with that <laughs> yeah I don't know but it's interesting how complacent the Federation was in the first couple of seasons yeah. of Next Gen yeah. and slowly the cracks begin to appear with the measure of a man and then just the absolute shock of Q Who and the Borg and that's when we start to get a more nuanced and critical vision and then we have this Admiral Haftel in the, in the Offspring who doesn't seem like a bad person and he's certainly not a cackling villain, but he commits what Terry Pratchett calls the ultimate sin of treating people as things. Mm. And that's certainly a lot more of an, a much more interesting way to have a villain and an, a Badmiral than, <laughs> right. than cackling and taking over the universe. Right, yeah, rubbing your hands together. Um, yeah. I just think that it's it's like... It's, uh, it's an amazing work of additive kind of fiction, the, the Star Trek universe, because you start with, you know, this uh, white male American spaceman who says, you know, that we've solved hunger and want and we don't uh, mm -hmm. pursue riches and things like that. And whether or not that's really espoused, the people who come later saw that and now they are creating stories that are embodying that even more mm. well I was going to move on I was just going to say that um, I love this episode and it's one of the episodes I strongly remember from watching the show when it was originally on um, I or somebody in my house must have taped it because I clearly remember watching it over and over oh, and wow. um, I'm glad that you guys uh, chose it for this episode because it was great to watch it again with a more critical eye and I think it's really what sci-fi, in my opinion, is for, and Star Trek specifically. It's a very basic story about parenthood and, and the, death, the death of a child, but it fits mm -hmm. so well mm -hmm. into the world of TNG. And, you know, we've talked about, I'm not sure where Melinda Snodgrass is coming from when she says that it was unnecessary, um, but this episode and, of course, Measure of a Man are the basis for the next, next generation in Picard. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, which is the other, obviously, the reason I wanted to watch it. And I kept yeah. picturing, you know, the characters of Picard going through the logs and looking at the footage of Lal. And, yeah. you know, this is Soji and Daj's older sister. She's the prototype. <laughs> yes. Yeah, right. Um, the, the premise, I think, is actually a little scary. I mean, Data's not scary at all. He's, he's best android. But when you write a sci-fi <laughs> story about the robot revolution, it starts with yeah. robots making robots. But when the robot has made a robot who's just a nice girl who wants to learn and make friends and learn how to hold hands, yeah. you know, I for one welcome our robot overlords. It is Lolly. Yeah, right, yeah. And she's dressed uh, somewhat unthreateningly as, uh, she looks like Snow White a little bit. She looks a yeah. lot like Snow White. <laughs> yeah. As somebody with a positronic brain, uh, I have to wonder if she has the, um, like, the Asimovic laws. I'm not sure that they're totally canon in Star Trek, but... They certainly make a lot of connections between uh, Asimov and Data's positronic brain. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's definitely what was missing from Law's programming. Yeah, that was one where he just winged it. And it's like, ah, oh, let's get the laws. Whoops. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, which is what happens when you have tech bros making things and not thinking about the ethical implications. <laughs> hmm. You get a real Age of Ultron situation. <laughs> oh <my> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm fascinated by the argument in the episode, and I think it has merit. Uh, that data makes about being a species of one. Um, you know, yes. okay, we established in Measure of a Man that he's alive, more or less. So being alive and being quote-unquote human means creating a family and nurturing it. So bing, bang, bop, here's a pinkish weird face kid I made. Yeah, and it's it's more than that. He wants to improve upon himself. And I think, you know, people have children for all sorts of reasons, but for data choosing to build a child more or less from scratch i think that's a really good motivation which fits fits the premise of his character as someone who doesn't feel emotion but also it's kind of emotional but and he wants a legacy he wants there to be something of himself that he can leave behind yeah in the in the case of his destruction which is what happens right Right. flash forward to star trek picard and that's where we are and I still wonder how did Data consent to Maddox, you know, using his material in this way? Because there are certainly questions raised. So but maybe they did discuss it. And just since we're talking about Picard here, mm. there are two things stuck out. Uh, one, the Admiral literally used Romulans as the yes, <laughs> example of of who's going to destroy both androids. Um, so that was fun. And then at the very end, Data says that he basically downloaded Lol's essence into his own positronic brain. Right. And the, at least Dr. Gerardi's theory of how Soji and Dodge were created is that a tiny bit of Data positronic was used. Yeah. And so I was like, so it's Lol. Not only... <laughs> Not only that, but apparent, like I think it's hinted that Soji and Daj, not Daj anymore, but Soji has the ability to access Data's memories at some point in her evolution. So, at least in theory. So, in a way, Lal lives on. And we have Data with the five queens in the dream sequence that opens Picard's first episode. Yeah. And so that's like two sets of twins and Lal. And Lal. I like hmm. it. Lal asks Data what their purpose is, and he says it's to contribute in a positive way to the world in which we live. And I had to wonder if that was Data's personal philosophy, if that was Soon's um, sort of 
you know, ROM program. Programming. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if that's just, he's just um, parroting the, the sort of Federation creed. Mm. That moment jumped out at me because how many how many TV shows are just going to casually toss off, oh yeah, this is why we exist. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right, yeah. Here is our philosophy for living. <laughs> yeah. In a throwaway line. Yeah, but I, I feel like I've heard a similar sentiment from Picard before yeah. for people yeah. in that universe. So. I can definitely believe it as a Starfleet adage. Mm-hmm. And which I like because I'm always complaining that they don't define Starfleet enough in modern Trek and yet expect mm. us to understand what it is. Yeah. So I that that is like okay maybe this is what they what they mean are these are these ideas of creating positivity. It's also like in a society where economically you don't have to work what do you do? And so you raise people and encourage them to con- contribute in some positive way. Yeah. Right. Not everybody, though. I think Tom Paris would just work on his uh, 69 Camaro or something all day. But, but that, that would be contributing something. <laughs> that suppose. brings joy to fellow car nerds. That's right. true. Yeah, you'd still have auto shows in the 24th century. Uh, yeah. There's been a lot of speculation, especially recently with the premiere of Picard, over how good, quote-unquote, the Federation actually is and i think that that you know we you get a statement like that from data which seems to imply that you know that is the party line as far as it goes but then we see that a not everybody's doing that in something like picard and b maybe that's not even completely realistic you know it's possible to have a credo uh and people just not follow it or just be like observe it more in the in the breach than the observance yeah, yeah, and not even necessarily villains or criminals, but people who are just morally lazy. Yeah, yeah, moral laziness. That's what we have to conquer to get to Star Trek. <laughs> I find it troubling that every time we face a quandary like this over artificial life, be it Data or Lol or the Doctor or Exocomps, uh, it seems like the Federation and the powers that be are committed to the clearly wrong choice. Yeah, and I'm wondering if maybe the big secret in Picard that the Jacques Vache and everyone is carrying around is going to address that in some way. And maybe it really does come back to control in Discovery or, you know, some secret massacre or whatever that, you know, there's just this really strong cultural bias against artificial intelligence. There also seems to be a momentum towards the kind of slavery that... Guinan points out in Measuring Man, Man. unfortunately. We go through so so many episodes like this where time and time again it's proved that clearly this is is wrong. Like, just like with with real-world discrimination, the solution is exposure, meeting and knowing the person or people that you're discriminating against. Every one of these episodes, we've got somebody who's discriminating against data, they spend ten minutes with him, and they're like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, he's human. But yet, (laughs) despite all of that... You know, it just seems like there's this slide into, well, clearly you're going to make a bunch of disposable workers to be on Mars. Well, that's moral laziness, yeah. too, because it's just easier. If we, if we say they don't, they're not real and we're not hurting anything, then we, then we can get away with it. Yeah. One of the things that I liked about Una McCormack's uh, Picard novel is that it's specifically stated that 
the synths were not sentient and were not designed to have capacity for sentience. Okay. And Picard's first thought when he hears of the attack is, oh my God, they have developed sentience and they didn't want to be our slaves. Uh-huh. And it really, it actually really troubles me that this is not made clear in the show because I think given this series, this franchise's history... Yeah. Yeah, you see that a guy with should have been made clear. Yeah, you see a guy with like gold skin and eyes, and you're like, well, okay, I know that this guy has the potential to, to be sentient or whatever. But you're you're saying yeah. that it's it's clear that they are limited and they are not. Yeah, they were designed to be tools, and they yeah, you... were not meant to have the capacity to evolve. Maybe they did anyway. To quote Jurassic Park. Oh no! <laughs> Go ahead. Life, Life finds a way. Will find a way. <laughs> And if that turns out to be the case, then, you know, once again, the Federation will have made a terrible error. But I don't... <laughs> of course. They did not set out to create an intelligent slave race. I don't think that the Federation ever intentionally does all of the horrible things that the Federation does. Oh, no. No. But it makes me feel better to know that this was a consideration at some point. Yeah. And, and right. it should, should have been made clear and, and on screen. We can also sort of universalize to say, because we've had discussions about holograms and how close to sentience, or, you know, if you leave one on long enough, like the doctor, will it just become sentient? Or because then it seems like a problem if you're using them for whatever you want to use them for. Yeah. Mm. But enough about Rios and his harem (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just saying We can universalize it too That they made a point of making it So that those were false holograms Mm. Were were not capable of it Which doesn't mean that they aren't capable of it It means that they tried to make them not They're not even using their slaves right Because we see in that episode Everybody's complaining about working on a holiday Or a double shift or whatever That's why you have slave labor So you can go home on uh, Memorial Day. Yeah, I never enough. understood. Like, I that whole scene really confuses me on many levels. <laughs> because yeah, it, we, we just were talking about how Tom Paris would never do that. He would just fix his car all the time, and so it's like, so how did these guys get the short straw of we're going to do this menial well, task yeah, on a yeah. holiday and get blown up? Well, I just think that the scale of the Romulan. In, uh, evacuation was such that they couldn't let everyone have the day off. Right, right. And somebody and drew the short straw. Yeah, yeah, which, you know, lives are at stake, That's part so they're going to grumble, communism. but are still going to go to work. Right. Um, I think that there is something, we've talked about this a little bit on the show uh, recently as well, that there is a glaring lack of uh, automation and AI uh, outside mm. of Data and the Doctor and Star Trek, and I think that I've, I've the, the solution that I've come to personally is that Gene Roddenberry just wasn't interested in talking or telling stories about um, AI. Um, a robot or a computer was something Kirk had to talk to death to get to the mm. end of the episode. And, of course, we're fascinated with that stuff in the last half of the 20th century. And so, you know, we're seeing it now in, in Picard. But it this world is additive still. And the fact that we haven't seen it, you can't just erase that and put little R2-D2 drones in Discovery and pretend like they've always been there. Like, yeah. it is missing for a reason. And I just think that they're, my headcanon of the reason is that Federation citizens are, are a little squicky about this. Like, they they want to, even though they complain about it and their space food or whatever, like, they, they want to contribute and they want to work, and that's why their civilization works. And handing it off to something else seems weird. 
definitely handing it off to something else with a nose and eyes and a mouth mm. is weird. But it's, when we distasteful, yeah. And as, but as we're passing into the 25th century, some we've crossed some line where they're like, well, either out of necessity or just changes in social act, uh, attitudes, we're, we're fine with it now. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. No, I think like I don't really have a problem with the presence of drones in Discovery because I think. As a society, our idea of what technology is capable of has evolved and there's less of a sense of the robots are going to take our jobs because we know that those drones still need operators and so forth. Yeah. And it's just the difference. It's the difference between sending a machine that's controlled by a human sitting on a couch versus sending out a human in a space suit. Yeah. And that just wasn't an option. Right. And if you take that far enough, why, why are we sending anybody? Like, why isn't every ship just populated by datas? Or if the Enterprise's computer can achieve sentience as it does at the end of TNG, why not just send the ship? Yeah. Well, you know, a whole ship crewed by Datas is what Maddox wanted in Measure of a Man. Yeah. And look how he ended up. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that is... Um, but don't people uh, want to be on the spaceships? Oh, no, that's, yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and take their families with them, which doesn't make any sense. But uh, Maddox, it, that's... it makes more sense on the Enterprise than it did on like Seven's ship with her parents. That was the family. But with but you. weren't they? They were kind of like wackos, though, weren't they? Did yeah, they, they were have, crazy like... scientists. Yeah, they were had fringe scientists. Yeah, <laughs> I for me like <laughs> bringing. Apparently, they were Bernie Bros. <laughs> <laughs> They, wow, uh, they were, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, I, was that Bruce, like, com- is it because they said a communist joke? I'm, I'm, I'm really stuck I don't, in this. I, yeah, the, the, I, the, the, I, like, I, I don't, I want to understand, except I don't really. Can, uh, can we talk about emotions? Uh, soon develop these robots who don't have emotions, that's the party mm-hmm. line, but mm. Data clearly is capable of emotion and has for the entire series, and maybe he's accustomed to feeling them, or maybe they're underdeveloped, but he couldn't do any of the things that he does without emotion. And so, what's going on? Why does Sung feel the need to gaslight his son that he can't or doesn't feel emotion? I think that Sung is a scientist and an engineer, and, you know, he's about robotics. And he doesn't know what emotional intelligence is because that's not his field. And so he doesn't understand (laughs) (laughs) that he has emotions and the data has emotions. Like he just doesn't realize that emotions aren't something that are like created by magic or chocolate chip cookies, right? That's not what an emotion comes from. An emotion actually is a, you know, a synapse in your brain lighting up and you know, based on something that's happening, which is exactly what, if I understand how datas work, which I don't, but if I understand how datas work, their positronic brains are the same as our carbon-based life form brains. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> our, our, our moist brains, yeah. And, yes. And so it, emotions would still work the same way, in my opinion. As a social scientist. Yeah. Like, I think to some extent, emotions are driven by, like, hormones and chemical reactions. Mm. And data 
doesn't have adrenaline and therefore doesn't feel fear in the sense of panic, but he has certainly expressed fear in the sense of being concerned for the welfare of his crewmates and his friends. Right. And I think in a way this is an allegory for how people with autism don't necessarily express their emotions the way neurotypical people sure. expect and therefore there's this cliche that they don't have feelings at all when in fact generally autistic people have a full range of emotion sure. they just don't necessarily express it yeah right. this speaking of emotions uh this is a great episode if you want to see a lot of scenes of picard sighing unhappily uh, as, <laughs> as, as the scene ends he's really kind of going through it in this scene and Stuart does a great job, and he does a great job of showing Picard's attempts to sort of elide over some of the situations. Like when he talks with the Admiral, there's some great mm. there's some great code switching with him where he at first begins like, well, this isn't a problem, and then he's kind of trying to, not pull rank because he's lower rank, but he's trying to establish that, no, I think we're going to do this. And the Admiral's not having it, and then later on, he's drinking tea with the Admiral, and he's like, well, well, you'll get what you want just at a later time. And nothing seems to work because this guy comes in and he just wants to get this android uh, mm. to his little lab. But um, there's a lot of like sort of emotional tactics being uh, played by Picard. And one of them does seem to be that he's on the verge of offering that ultimatum where if Starfleet does this, I will tender my resignation. Yeah, it's another quit Starfleet situation. Yeah, yeah. 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 How many times has he played this card? <laughs> I mean, really? Yeah, after a while. Well, he plays it for the last time, I guess, in uh, the Picard series. But yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe it's like all those times Tom Baker used to threaten to quit Doctor Who and then was really shocked and outraged when they were like, okay, cool, we'll line up a replacement then. Sure, right. Bye. <laughs> Dr. Crusher gets to weigh in in this episode as a mother, which unfortunately most of her characterization is, I'm a mom. But, but this, is the right way, yeah. this is the right way to do it, I think. Not just having her exclaim, my son, randomly. Yeah. And she's also the mother of an extremely gifted child, which yeah. is something that not every parent has experience with. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I really liked her advice that you can let your kid know that you had similar problems and that you can empathize with them, which is what Data is going to do. And yeah, I thought this was a good role for her. And it's, I wish we had gotten to see Lyle hanging out with Wesley because they're, they seem like they're the same age yeah. and yes. he is a genius and an outsider. And, you know, maybe instead of sending her into the kids' class, they could have put her in classes with Wesley. I'm not sure he's the guy I would want to socialise anyone, but <laughs> you go with what you've got. But Guinan could have taken them both to socialisation classes. Man, instead of letting Wesley on the bridge, why didn't they just give him a, a job in 10 Forward where he would actually learn stuff? Oh, right. well, so... <laughs> Can we talk about how degrading the Admiral is about Ten Forward yeah. and people who yeah. work there? <laughs> what the to hell a is bar. wrong with being a cocktail waitress? I right. was super annoyed with him. And it was also like, he was, it was, it was like, I am going to be Admiral Patriarchy for a moment here and tell you how, like, all of this is, you, you know, you shouldn't be socializing her to begin with. You shouldn't be treating her as some lesser human being like a cocktail waitress like yeah. he's yeah. very you know i'm worried about her potential as this this perfect virginal woman and <laughs> and you can't send her into 10 forward of all places 
My God, a bar that serves synthahol. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, obviously, you, you do a modern reading of something and you find things that maybe weren't intended. But, yeah, what you're pointing out is really strange. And what is his backstory? I feel like there was, something was cut or there was some element that didn't make it into the final script. But, you know, Guidance like, you've been in a bar or two. I, yeah, I know. And then later on, he's talking about, you know, he's arguing that they should let um, Law go with him. And his argument is... I am a parent. It's like, okay. And he says, um, and I know I know how hard it is to, to let your kids go or whatever. What happened to Admiral Kavanaugh's kids? Like, did they get <laughs> taken away from him or something? I just took that as, like, an extremely sketchy background that he's one of those people who thinks that because he has kids, he's an expert on parenting. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and... he didn't raise those kids. No, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah right. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's the been. admiral raised them. He's, yeah. he's taking care of those kids. I mean, clearly, I think that that is, that's one of those things that I've gotten out of all of Star Trek is that if you are a Starfleet officer, you don't have a personal life. And if you do, mm-hmm. it's someone else is taking care of the kids and taking care of the, the family. Yeah. Like, it's every, all of our characters that we know and love, their relations are like, a disaster. They, they're, they're either estranged, or we never see them, or they're blown up, or die in a fire. Yeah. And it's just like, or you know, Cisco is the greatest dad in the series, but he still takes off at the end of Deep, Deep Space Nine to become a prophet. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, Avery Brooks was Against very that. hesitant right. about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point about Data, and I was thinking about him talking about how it's important that he's with Lol and she grows up um, with him, and thinking about his background and him being an orphan essentially, and not only yeah. being somebody Based who had Starfleet. Yeah, and, yeah, not only didn't have any parents, but grew up in a military organization. So the way that he views things mm. is definitely through that lens. And they want to, yeah, to orphan this this girl, basically. And who knows how she'll turn out. Yeah, and like I said earlier, it's kind of that story of parenting as a marginalised person. And Australia has a history of stealing children from Indigenous people and yeah. raising them, having them raised by yeah. the state or by white people. So yeah. And I don't want to say that... Yes. I don't want to say that Data, an extremely white man, is well, well. in any way a stand-in. But right. I think there's a parallel there if you can if you can see it and if you can apply some empathy and imagination. Yeah. And Data was in Starfleet for 18 years before he came aboard the Enterprise, yeah. and he seems to have had no friends and no mentors in humanity before he joined this ship. And I think he must have been very lonely, and he clearly doesn't want that for his daughter. Right. Right. Which is fair. Why would yeah. Why would he want it for her? And I also like they're right. In that, first of all, Picard says, okay, I am willing to let Data take a leave of absence and go with her. Mm. Right. And, yeah. and they yeah. don't want that. And then Lal is like, okay, I'll come with you once I've learned everything I can on the Enterprise. And they don't want that either. It's like Starfleet is very, we want our way or nothing. And all right. of, like they're showing all of these reasonable compromises. Right, mm. right. Yeah, I wonder if is the. I mean, we only see the Enterprise. Is the Enterprise the only ship that does this 
uh, are it, every other ship in the fleet every week somebody's threatening to quit over this or the, or the coffee like I said it's just I mean if that's true then I can understand Starfleet being the parent that's like this is the hard line you're gonna do what I say it's this is the rule because it's the Enterprise it's doubly silly because the Enterprise has literally been created to have your family with you like that is the point right. of the Enterprise D right yeah so this whole argument of like what will happen if you go into battle with the Romulans and it's it's like, uh, 900 civilians will die. Yeah. Like, You're human kids. What about this robot why kid? Is, yeah. Why is, why is yeah. that not a bad thing? I really do question their priorities. Yeah. I just worry sometimes. Uh, I have to mention uh, Spiner's performance in this episode. I mean, he's always great, but he is he's really great in this. And I think it's exemplified in that final scene when, if this is the custody drama that you posited earlier... That is, this last scene is him doing the speech where he's on the stand and he's arguing for why he should be uh, the father or allowed to continue to have custody of this kid. And because he's Data, he can't have emotion, but the way that he he delivers this, like, passionate speech in the flat, you know, cadence of of sort of Data, but you still get it. And the words that he says about it being his duty and about how nobody can relieve him of his obligation to his child... Is, it was just great. It's a great bit of writing. It's a great bit of acting. I was really impressed with Spiner's performance as well. And mm. I often, I think, misremember. I don't uh, misremember Data as over the top. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sometimes it can be a little hammy. In, and certainly, like, a lore is super hammy. And everything yeah. that Brent Spiner did in Enterprise... Or, like, <laughs> past Next Generation. Like, when he was in Independence Day, and that was ridiculous. And so I, I, like, remember that. So when I watch these quieter episodes of Data, as you say, giving a really emotional performance with no emotion, it's really impressive. Like, I, I, then I, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is why everyone loves Data so much and why everyone yeah. thinks that Brent Spiner is such an amazing actor. Like, it's this stuff. Yeah. And like a lot of people who are really good at something, they don't always know what it is exactly that they're good at. So when you... Right. Overcompensate. So, so, so Brent Spiner always wants to put on a cowboy hat and, like, dance around. <laughs> or when you let his best friend write a Star Trek movie, uh, you get Star Trek Nemesis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to mention quick that, you know, this episode, um, I often see it, uh, shout-outs to it online for being really woke because Data lets Lyle choose her gender. But if you watch the rest of the episode, it's uh, not so yeah. much uh, in the way that it frames yeah, gender. No. Also, the, when Deanna says, this is the most important decision of your life because it will yeah. It'll never change. change everything yeah. and you can't yeah. ever possibly change it. And it's like, well, no. <laughs> you can be a one or a zero and you have to choose that and be that forever. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, like, Lal has chosen her gender and that is treated as quite real and valid. And that's cool. And no one's going, but you just picked that out on the holodeck. But yeah, I don't think this is an amazing... I don't think it's as very binary. people think it is. Hmm. Although (laughs) although her first choice is to be Marina Sirtis. And if you have a choice to be Marina Sirtis, always be Marina Sirtis. Absolutely. That would be my choice. Let's be real. I found the directing in that scene very odd because Deanna goes, I am a female. And then she turns so that the camera can like take in her figure. And 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's uh Okay. <laughs> it's also that you know, when they're going through the holodeck, like the four the her the four finalist choices, she says something about each of them except the human female and she's just like, I like her. I like her. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. A friend yeah. for war she's, because they all know yeah. each other. It's like, come on, show. <laughs> and it, it's like, oh, hey, this human male body is it going to be extremely popular <laughs> with the ladies? <laughs> right, exactly. And then oh. the girl is like, yeah, she's. I like her. She's nice looking. Mm. And like, I like that we have a very rare fembot who is not sexualized, like across any media that is unusual. But come on, I wish she'd lived so we could have Data's reaction when Lull starts dating. Yes, well, we get a, a little slice of it with, uh, "What are your intentions mm. to my daughter?" Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just think how much he'd hate Soji's Romulan boyfriend. <laughs> Awkward dinner parties all the way down. Yeah. Oh yeah. my goodness. <laughs> I really want like a awkward dinner party now, like like you know Thanksgiving or something, where yeah. all of the daughters and <laughs> you know and also like Lore and and all of that side of the family and Sung and everybody, let's the, just bring everybody in. The android wife he built to replace his real one, and that little kid who wanted to be Data. <laughs> and, and, oh, no. and Data like said, "You can be my, you know, you can be my blood brother from now on." <laughs> yeah, be just great. the whole everybody, the whole Sung Maddox family, <laughs> and then they fight. Exactly. I mean, it wouldn't go well, but it would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. There's only one emotion, and they can bring the cards so that he can just face palm during the during the entire thing. Yes. And uh, Jenna standing outside the window, fucking oh, up the glass. Oh, poor Jenna. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, uh, as we get to the end here, was there anything you guys wanted to say that we haven't said yet about the offspring? I just want to shout out Picard's extremely revealing pajamas and shiny silver pillow. <laughs> yeah. Forget JL, he's PJ. Yeah, yeah. Was and, and like... Yeah. And the, the admiral's like, I hope I'm not bothering you. And he's like, I'm literally in my pajamas. <laughs> yeah, You're right. bothering yeah. me. Yeah. Okay. I've got my tits out, mate. What like, do you think? <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't even try to hide it. He was just like, excuse me. Yeah. Picard's naked contempt for the admiral <laughs> yeah. is it's really on display. <laughs> yeah. And that wasn't a pun, but I'm going to let it go. <laughs> I think it works think all the same. Well, last time that you were on the show, uh, we talked about your, your space dads, your space moms, your favorite captains. Uh, I believe yes. Annika's was Janeway. And I was wondering how you think Janeway would have dealt with this situation. And Ooh. I think as we, uh, per our earlier discussion, you're probably going to have to point out what season Janeway we're, we're talking about. <laughs> I mean, Janeway is number one priority i guess i'll say is like she collects people she finds people and mm. she says you're gonna be in my family now and you know here's your position in in my family and it's like fast and the furious have you have any <laughs> have you guys watched the fast and the furious no i'm franchise where this is going okay so in fast and the furious like the entire franchise is about they're these car thieves who mm -hmm. go up against someone, you know, anyone, okay? So it's like their antagonist. In the first movie, it's a police officer who's undercover. And, they, you know, they're up against the FBI, they're up against the 
drug cartels, they're up against rival car thieves, etc., etc., etc. But by the next movie, those people that were the antagonists in the last movie are in their family. They're in the car thief <laughs> family now, too. That's how Janeway is. Janeway finds somebody who is, in some ways, an antagonist, and she brings them into her crew and says, you're, you're my crew now, and, and we're all going to work together. And so she would fight tooth and nail way more than Picard. Like, she wouldn't even let Admiral Haftel on the ship. She would be like, no, <laughs> you are not taking my android. We are jumping a warp nine right now and going to go hide mm. in a nebula and you people calm down. <laughs> it's funny because that's sort of Data's approach to Maddox, too. And so now I'm wondering, under different circumstances, would Data and Haftel have ended up BFFs? Oh. Yeah. And so yeah. It, hmm. Well, oh boy. Okay, so I was going to make a joke about how t- durotanium was uh, thicker than blood or something like that. But <laughs> now, now I want to do this instead. Uh, Data seems to be, like I said before, he's the guy who, I don't know about this guy. And then you meet him and you're like, he's the best guy ever. So, mm, yeah, right. we see we see in Data's day that he's formed this relationship with Maddox, with but Maddox. I wonder if he forms a relationship with uh, Haftel. And uh, Data wouldn't describe it this way because he doesn't think he feels emotion, but it's almost like, you know, going through these traumatic experiences of grief can create bonds between people. Mm. I wonder if he has a pen pal with him, too. And... As much as Haftel is not a sympathetic character, he spends hours trying to save Lal. And yeah. I think that's worth something. Yeah. And he's clearly affected by the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Final yeah. Scene. yeah. And as much as I also blame him for Lal's death, it seems like any strong emotion would have destroyed her eventually. Yeah. Like, she, she was doomed from the start, poor baby. Probably. I do like how um, they have the literal transfer of memories and experiences that they do when they get the little forehead things and he's sort of uploading stuff into her to make her net more complex. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's like, it's that sci-fi allegory of a parent, you know, sharing their experiences and, and things like that. Yeah. But, um, so we've reached the end of the show. Uh, you'll both receive a promotion from Ensign to the rank of Lieutenant Junior Grade. And we discussed which departments on the ship that you worked in previously. Uh, Annika, I believe, was a counselor uh, in the uh, counseling department. How would you counsel an android? If Troy had gotten a chance to sit Lal down and talk a little bit, uh, how would you have handled that situation? See, I wouldn't treat her any differently from a human or a Vulcan or a Andorian. Sure. I would, you know, I would read up on their culture so that I would know not to do certain things for, mm-hmm. say, an Andorian. I, could, I, th- I can imagine myself getting in trouble with that. But I think that the important thing in any counseling situation is to treat the person like their experience is, is completely valid. Yeah. And this is a place to just talk about it. And so you wouldn't want to assume that for example, she doesn't have emotions. You would assume that she does. Right. And, and go from that place. And, and so even if she's not, as we were saying about the allegory for autism, even if she's not displaying them in a way that's recognizable to me, that doesn't mean that she's not feeling them and that she's not experiencing them or that she's not able of desc- to describe them. 
Yeah. I always like when we see, well, I like when we see Troy um, do her job, but I like, I can't remember in later episodes when, say, Data gets the emotion chip, if we establish that Troy can detect android emotions. Yeah. But I, but I like the fact that just as a trained professional, it doesn't, she doesn't need her superpowers to go, yeah, oh, you're, right. having, you're having a problem here. Yeah, yeah. She can tell right away that it's... It's a, it's a, like, she doesn't know that it's a cascade of no. blah, blah, yeah, blah, yeah. positronics, but she knows that it's a cascade of emotion of or emotions, of yeah. problems, you know, it's like, she can see that. Yeah. It's a cascade of issues. Uh, Liz, you, I believe, were uh, working as an assistant to an admiral uh, in the yes. command division. How would you feel the call to Admiral Hastel's office that the uh, android doesn't want to give up the new android he made? <laughs> I would look at my email and I'd get myself a cup of coffee and then I would look at the email again and then I would punt it on to the Admiral and go, this is not really my problem, but if you want my input, and I do tend to offer input whether it's asked for or not, you should just let the Android stay. And then he would ignore me because he's clearly not a great guy to work with and I, I feel like I would, I would probably want a, a transfer to a less... Less of a jerk. <laughs> like, that's what I want in it, my admiral boss. Not evil, not a jerk. Right. <laughs> Seems like slim pickings for, for that. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to find many of those. <laughs> it's, good to have that, it's good to have that luxury in the uh, Star Trek universe as well. If you were in the Star <laughs> Wars universe... Uh, and you were an assistant to a Sith Lord or something like that. It seems like there's high, <laughs> high turnover. And I wonder if that attitude bleeds into the rest of the staff. You know, if an assistant to just a regular moth or something, uh, if, if, if the moth is like, oh, I'm going to throw hot coffee in this guy's face. And then, you know, yeah. his boss comes down and goes, no, no, that's just like Kylo Ren's thing. You can't, we, we've got a, got a shortage of manpower here. Yeah, I, this reminds me that I really just want a, a Star Wars sequel spin-off that's a workplace comedy about Kylo Ren's personal assistant and the trauma they go through every day at work. Adam Driver doesn't have to be in it. We don't need to see Kylo Ren. I just want the shenanigans. See, now, and, this... Oh, God dang it. I, um, there is a... Detours, that's it. There is a yes. unpublished Star Wars show called Star Wars Detours that was an animated comedy show in the style of uh, your Robot Chickens. I think it was actually produced by Seth, Seth Green that mm. has not come out. It was before the, um, the sale happened and before the whole plan to make the sequels uh, was sort of fashioned. Um, they were going to do this, and then when the sequels were in the mix, they were like, well, this isn't what we want for our brand. But it's like this whole yeah. goofy sort of thing, which probably would have featured some scenes like you're describing. Oh, man! Yeah! In, uh, <sighs> in the certain point of view Star Wars book, it's like an anthology of, of short stories. Mm. There is one that is absolutely hilarious, and it's the memo that the guy that Vader, like, chokes in the in a new hope he writes a, a memo to human resources <laughs> <laughs> that was written by daniel mallory ortberg wasn't it i don't remember i don't i don't think i've read the whole book but i definitely read that story i'm just saying there's a lot of yeah. workplace comedy that is you know mm. we can put into both star wars and star trek it is it is there we can make it happen <laughs> and if CBS wants to do a sitcom, they should give me a call. I have ideas. Maybe that's what Laura Dix is. Uh, oh, it must be. 
right? I mean, yeah, it has to be something along those lines. But it's definitely about people who are underlings. Yeah. Mm. Well, let's let's hope they land it. Fingers crossed. It's yeah, it's tough, and I'm sure that you know, I'm sure detours sucks, but and, and that's another reason that they never <laughs> they never released it. But yeah, it's really hard to hit that uh, that that exact point between you know parody and, and sort of comedy. And now we're talking yeah. about Star Wars, and you guys have ruined my show. So let's you wrap it up. Enough. I did. I absolutely surprisingly, I wasn't the fault. one. Oh <laughs> uh, no. Well, Lieutenants Dane and Barr, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek in the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EISTPod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Uh, we're at, at AntimatterPod, all one word, uh, on Tumblr. Oh, I'm sorry, on Twitter, and AntimatterPod, all one word, dot Tumblr dot com. Uh, I can be found at underscore Liz Barr, all one word, at Twitter and squiddishly.net. Annika? I can be found at at ManicPixieDane on Twitter or at ManicPixieDust.com. And if you do like Star Wars, I also have a Star Wars podcast called Brea and Leia. Oh, yeah. What, where, where can people find Brea and Leia? Uh, Brea and Leia is at, uh, on Twitter at Brea and Leia, which is B-R-E-H-A-N-L-E-I-A, and, or Brea and Leia.live. Uh, I'm eligible for Best Fan Writer in the Hugo Awards for my Star Trek blogging in 2019. Uh, I have no illusions that I could win, but I'd really like to get more than one nomination. Sure, and people could go... Where where do people go for that? I'm not 100% sure, but if you're a member (laughs) of uh, this year's Worldcon, which is being held in New Zealand, then you are eligible to nominate. All right, great. Well, thanks again for joining me. Thanks for having having us. us. We are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. Your Honor, a courtroom is a crucible. In it, we burn away irrelevances until we are left with a pure product, the truth, for all time. Oh, man, this is so intense. Data is on trial for his life. I know. This episode, The Measure of a Man, is based on the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision of 1857. And every week on Backtracking, we take a look at the real-world events that inspired classic Star Trek episodes. Sorry. Shut up! Who are you? <laughs> We're the hosts of Backtracking. I'm Caliban. You will both be taken to the brig and from there to the nearest star base, where you will answer charges for what you have done. And I'm Gooey Fame. This is not a game. This is life and death. You, you can follow us on Twitter. Backtracking is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You, go f*** yourself. <laughs>